We have the privilege this morning of hearing Alex Watlington um, open God's word for us. Alex uh, will be known to um, some of you. He's, uh, he's been with us a couple times before. Alex uh, ministers to college students at USC through uh, the ministry of Reformed University Fellowship. Uh, RUF, which is a part of, um, of our denomination's outreach to college students around the country. And uh, Alex has been a, a good friend for several years, and so Alex, uh, we're excited to have you back uh, with us this morning. Thanks for having me here. Thanks, brother. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. If you have a Bible, you can turn to uh, the book of James, chapter 4. Would you let me know if I'm like standing in the middle of one of the themes? It's super distracting if that happens. Um, as we uh, start the new year, this is a text I think that um, just speaks so uh, clearly and, and practically to a lot of um, maybe some of the 10,000 foot thoughts that we have on 2018. Uh, this comes from. Uh, the book of James chapter 4 beginning at verse 13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. For what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then it vanishes. Instead you ought to say if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is God's word. Um, so a little context for this book, if you've not um, read through the book of James before. Most scholars kind of look at the book of James and call it uh, New Testament wisdom literature. So what he's doing in this book is he's not sort of talking to you about how you become a Christian uh, or what it looks like to enter into the Christian life, but he's sort of describing what does life look like uh, if the gospel gets a hold of your life. If Jesus comes into your life and begins to mold and shape your heart and your thoughts, what will life look like then? And in this particular context, he's talking about Christian wisdom. And in order to make that clear, what he's going to do for us in this specific text is contrast worldly wisdom with specifically Christian wisdom. And even more specific, contrasting worldly wisdom with Christian wisdom under the nature of planning and thinking about your future. And there's nothing more practical probably in American culture than this week than thinking about those things. And so what he wants to do there is introduce you into the way, the wise way of life, the wise way to sort of go about your life, the wise way to think forward on your perspective of what this year will look like and how you make plans in this world. And in order to do that, he sort of wants to splash water in your face and sh- sort of shock you back into a biblical view of reality by telling you four things. And I just changed this outline as I was sitting there, so I'll have to read it to you. Um, let's look at let's look at coming back into wisdom. And having a wise view of our future through this way, through saying, one, you can't know. Two, you need to stop trying to know. Three, what you need to know. And four, how you can know. Okay, so in order to have a wise view of your plans and of your future, one, you need to know you can't know. 
Two, you need to stop trying to know. Three, here's what you need to know. And four, how can you know? Okay, first, you can't know. Look at verse um, 14, excuse me, verse 13. This is the key to the whole text. Or James wrote this, Come now, you who would say. Now this is a classic way for Greek scholars to sort of introduce a rebuke and a pushback. And so whenever they would say this and write this, come now, they're going to introduce something, they're going to disagree and press back to you that you're doing. But the problem with what James is going to press back on us is that it is so normal that his press back is going to be confusing to us. I've got a friend who lives um, in a condo down by LAX, and uh, about a year and a half ago, we were sitting up on his roof just talking and having drinks, and uh, we're standing there talking in a mid-conversation. I mean, what it sounded like a 747 was about to fly into his building. I mean, the scream was so loud, I literally fell over and dropped my drink, and I go, what was that? And he said, what was what? <laughs> I was like, the plane that almost ran into your building, and he said, oh, I don't even notice that anymore. And what James is going to push back against us is it's something that we don't even notice anymore. We, we don't even feel it. But it's a 747 flying over our condo. Now when he talks about plans and futures, uh, one of the questions is, is he pressing back against strategic planning and sort of future planning altogether? As if the Christian life is just close your eyes and lock your fists and pray and hope God will all work it out. That's not what it's talking about. Because if you read the book of Proverbs, uh, often the perspective of wisdom in the book of Proverbs is if you don't plan, if you don't think forward about your life, you are a fool. But that's not what he's talking about here. The 747 that's flying over our heads that we don't even know is what he says in verse 16, that you do this with boasting and with arrogance. We simply put, the way that we go about our future and our plans is we do it under the illusion of control. As when we think about what wants to, what needs to happen in our life, what we want to do this year, what we want to happen this year, what we want to see happen in our relationships, or in our jobs, or in our practical, normal, extracurricular lives, we do so under the default mode of the illusion of control, thinking there's something that we can think about. There's enough information that we can gather there's enough conversations that we can have. There's enough planning that we can do that can make it happen the right way. And there's never been a culture where this burden of the illusion has been heavier than, than it is in 21st century American living because the options are seamless. The more options that we have, the heavier that burden gets. So much so that, that people who, you know, your typical person who didn't struggle with control 25 years ago now is burdened with it. Now if you're sitting there going, well, I don't really um, battle control the way that person does. Um, let me just ask you this question. Do, do you want life to go well? Do you, want your, do you want 2018 to be a good year for you? Do you want it to be a good year for your family, for your close friends? If you do, you probably struggle with control. Struggle with control, it looks like this. And in the most simple, mundane ways. Struggling with control looks like using shaming language. Do you know what I mean? When people decide something you love, decide something and they think a certain way, or they're going to uh, choose this option over this option, your reaction is to shame them. I wouldn't do that. 
Are you so sure you know what you're doing here? Have you thought enough about this? Have you calculated it right? A struggle with control, it looks like using repetitive language to somebody who knows or is going to decide to do something. They're going to make a decision and make a plan that involves you in any way, uh, but it's important to you enough that you have to, despite their confidence, repeat to them over and over again. Do you understand? Do you get it? This is so natural to our parenting. If we tell children enough times, surely we can convince them to do the right thing. We can convince them to do something that will make us proud, will make us feel worthy of, a parent, of being a parent. A struggle with control, it looks like the inability to rest. And so many of us just spent the holidays unable to calm down because all that was going on is how much money we were spending as all of this joy was happening. Or the fact that we were going to have to go back to work when this is over. And the burden standing there looking at us of work was so thick and so heavy that it kept us from even enjoying the free moments that we had right then and there. And struggling with control also makes you believe that fear will change people. You know, somebody who's doing something that you don't approve of or you don't like right now, we're so sure that if we scare them out of the consequences and scare them out of the foolish mistake that they will make, that they will change and do the wise thing. And all of those things that are so simple to us and feel so natural to us, they're all tethered for us under the presumption of the good life. That if we do this, if we could just accomplish this goal, if we could just get this relationship, if we can just reconcile this thing, then we will have peace, then we will have joy, then we will have happiness, and then we have the comfort in our life. And when that we presume that goal, and we are chasing those things that seem so instinctive to us, it's like a 747 flying over our condo that we don't even know anymore. Listen, there's no room for Jesus, and you have to do that under the illusion of control. When you're after your own peace and your own happiness and your own comfort, those things are so fickle and they're so slippery in life, you have to pursue them with control. And we just presume that that's the normal way to go about it. And what's foolish is to think that you can do something about it, that you can calculate it. If you want to make a wise decision in this world, if you want to have a wise year, you have to know you can't know. You can't control things. You can't do it. There's not enough knowledge. There's not enough planning. There's not enough conversations to have to ever control the outcome. And if you want to begin to, wise, to live the wise life, you have got to begin to stop yourself and learn you can't know. Secondly, though, you need to stop trying to know. Even though you think you can, you need to stop trying to think you can know. Look at verse 14. James says this, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, for what is your life? Listen, the foolishness that we so presume uh, is normal to pursue control, it, it, it assumes that we can know enough about the future to control the present. But what James here says is so helpful. He says, you do not know tomorrow. You cannot know. 
In fact, it's not just that you can't know. You should stop trying to know that. Because it's not just foolish, it's arrogant. See, we have a tendency, whether you're aware of this or not, to pursue all the attributes of God that we were never meant to have privy to. Now, real quick, if you're somebody who um, doesn't normally come to church and spirituality is something that you have kept at the bay and you're not sure where you are, one of the fascinating things that James is touching in for us is that we all want to be like God. Whether we're like uh, averse to spirituality or not, we have a deep desire to look into our life and to want to know more. To want to control things. To want to have enough omniscient knowledge that we can be sure of how we can make decisions today that will affect the best life for us tomorrow. Thomas Watson, uh, the Puritan writer, has got this treatise where he talks about uh, what it means to be conformed back into the image of God. And he says what, what, what the Holy Spirit does to Christians is he makes us back into the image of God that we were designed to be. But one of the interesting things is while the Spirit is making us into the image of God, He actually has to uh, mortify this part of our spirit that wants to be like God but is never meant to be like God. This is really theological, so hang with me for 30 seconds. Watson says this. He says, there are two parts to God's character. On the one hand, God is an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-controlling, all-everything God. And on the other side of God's character, He is loving, and He is compassionate, and He is forgiving, and He is merciful. And what Watson says is in our natural instinct, all of us want to be like this part of God's character. We all want to be omniscient. We all want to be controlling. We all want to be powerful. But what God wants us to do is He doesn't want to make us into this part of His image. He wants to make us into the other part of His image, of His character. That He is loving, and He is merciful, and He is kind, and He is giving, and He is loving. And it is this part, is this problem that affects our planning. Because what Watson says is if you want to be a full human being, and if you want to live a wise life according to James, we ought to pursue the part of God's character that is loving, merciful, kind, and forgiving. And run from the part of God's character that we so desire, which is all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-controlling, that we can never actually even attain ourselves. And interestingly enough, if you pursue God's character of being loving, merciful, kind, and giving, you will begin to live a wise life. But if you pursue God's character that is all-controlling, all-powerful, and all-knowing, it will make you simultaneously a control freak and full of worry. It will make you a control freak because if you think you can control the future, if you think you could know enough, you will never stop researching that. You will never stop having enough conversations, and you will need to rehearse everything a million times over to determine you get the right outcome. And listen, some of the worst decisions that have ever been made, I mean, in war, in business, and in relationships, have been built on the, presum the presumption that you can know enough about the future, therefore, to make this decision the present. 
I mean, have you heard this in relationships? Well, we know we're going to get married. So what we do in the present, it doesn't matter right now. I have a friend who was in a relationship with a woman, and they, let's just say, were overly emotional and overly physical uh, in their relationships uh, based on the presumption that they knew they were going to get married. And he is now married to her sister. Because the presumption that you know enough about today for tomorrow, it makes you a fool. Mark Twain said it so well. It ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. But see, if you think you can know enough about tomorrow, it will also make you a constant warrior. Because you will assume that you know how life should be going. And you know how the future should determine out. And anything that doesn't go the way that you want it to go will never let you sleep. And it will make you a constant warrior. Because this is the truth, whether it be in 2018 or the next five years. Life is going to throw you waves. It is going to rock you this way, and it's going to rock you that way. And you can either kiss those waves, or you can curse them. But if you think you know how life should be going... If you think you know how December 18 should turn out for you, anything that doesn't go along that plan, you will curse it. And it will drive you into bitterness. And it will sap you out of the joy of life. Or you can begin to go, we do not know tomorrow. We can't know tomorrow. You've not been privy to it. It is not what God calls us to do. You can't know. And you need to stop trying to know. But thirdly, <coughs> Here's what actually you can know. Look in verse 15. This is what James says. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now, this kind of language always needs a caveat uh, the more into the Christian culture that you get. Because often um, what this language is taken as is, well, when we make plans... We just need to be very pietistic about it and just say, well, if the Lord wills. And, and can I just say, anecdotally, how annoying that is <laughs> and manipulative. Because if you're in a conversation and you're talking about, well, this business transaction or if I'm going to sell you my house, if the Lord wills, just say yes or no. I mean, I mean to throw that on there and to sort of say, well, if you do it my way, often is what we mean by that. It will be God's way. That's not in any way what James is talking about. In fact, he doesn't say, if the Lord wills, we will know what to do. He says, if the Lord wills, we will live. And then we will do this or that. And, and listen, here's what this teaches. This is so simple, yet so foreign to our American culture. You don't need any new special knowledge to make wise decisions for your year. I mean, a lot of us uh, in this room, probably, are going to make big decisions. And maybe you're thinking about them this morning and in this moment. Whether or not we should move back east. Whether or not uh, we should take this job or this job. Whether or not we should pull our children out of this school and put them in this school. And... I don't want to minimize the conversation and the significance of what you're thinking about. But one of the perspectives that James is going to give to you, I hope this will free you up, 
is we are foolish if we think the significance of our decisions is A or B. I need to choose. It, it, our life is a fork in the road if we either go this way or this way. What James is talking about is the significance for your life is not whether you go A or B, but how you will live if you do A or B. Because he's saying it's not the issue if you move to San Diego or stay in Orange County. The issue is, will you be a joyful person? Will you be a thankful person? Will you be a giving person if you stay here or if you move there? And that's the perspective that will begin to give you a free, wise, joyful life. Not whether or not your life goes well if you stay here or if you go there. Or if you take this job or if you take that job. Because His will has been made clearly known to us. He has shown you, oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of thee. To do justly and to walk humbly with thy God. The author of the book of Hebrews says he has made it clear to us. God has spoken to us finally in the person of Christ, so much so that Peter can say he has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. In order for you to have a fantastic 2018 and to live the freest year you've ever lived, you don't need to know anything new this morning uh, beyond what God has already told you. Whatever comes this year, you just need to begin to pursue it. Am I going to do this thankfully, contently, and joyfully, whatever it be? That's what you need to know. But how, fourthly, how in the world can you begin to know that? Well, here's how you can begin to know that. Um, because we have to make plans. We have to think about our future. But the nuance of the Bible is, is sort of so far out in front of us. All of us are going to have to stretch to catch up. Because as you think about this year, and as you think about your plans, you have to do this, and you should be calculated, and you should be wise, but do it with a disposition that says, come what may, yet we may obey. And how in the world do we do this? Look in verse 14. I know that this has probably never been anybody's memory verse, but this is some of the most gentle, helpful, kind counsel in the New Testament. In verse 14, the second part, he says, What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. This is a sobering reminder <coughs> that is some of the most foreign counsel to us in 21st century life where we're trying all the time to perpetuate and extend our own existence. But James is giving us an illustration here. He's saying, you know, okay, if you go outside in the middle of the night and you breathe and you can see your breath, and then in a second it's gone. He's saying life is like that. And unless you know that, you are out of touch with reality and a fool. See, a fool for us in 21st century life is somebody who we, it's a way of insulting somebody, it's a way of insulting somebody's intelligence, or insulting somebody's political view. But a biblical fool is somebody who makes self-destructive decisions due to a blindness of reality. And unless you understand that life is like a breath, you have a blindness to reality that will affect all of your decisions. 
uh, about a year and a half ago, uh, Natalie Portman started that movie Jackie, where she was playing Jackie Kennedy. And in the portrayal of, of her life during the assassination and afterwards, she has this moment where she's in the hearse. And she's beginning to realize what has happened. And she's sitting with this man, and she looks at the driver and says, do you know who William Garfield is? And he says, no. She says, do you know who James McKinley is? He says, no. And she's mentioning all these dead presidents who were assassinated in office. And what happens for Jackie Kennedy in that moment is she realizes, I had built my whole life in existence in a relationship with this man, and we had become somebody. And we'd become the most successful young couple the United States had ever seen and arisen to the most prestigious view of power in the Western Hemisphere. We had achieved the top, and it, and it was there. And this was who my life was. This is who my identity was. This is who my future is going. And in a second, it's gone. And even the thought that I could maybe, well, I can build it on a reputation or a memory of who I can be, all these dead presidents, this guy driving the car has no idea who it is. And the rest of the movie is about her inability to cope with reality and to fall from grace. C.S. Lewis, in his essay, Life in an Atomic Age, he says, look, whether you're a king or you lead a genocide revolt, do you understand that there are oceans and oceans and oceans of time before you. And there are oceans and oceans and oceans of time after you. And whether you, you are the most significant leader, the most crazy murderer, the best in your field, your life is going to be like a drop in a thousand oceans. It truly will make no difference on this planet unless this thing called the resurrection of Jesus is actually true. And actually will come to fruition one day. See, what James is trying to get you to think about for this year, and what Lewis is pointing to, what Jackie Kennedy did not understand, is that we need to begin to think about decisions and plans in our life that don't pursue peace, joy, and happiness today, this month, but what will profit my life and soul five million years from now? There's a lot of things that you can plan to do this year that often come at the expense of other people and the expense of the community, maybe the expense of this church. But what if you begin to make plans this year and decisions that don't just have an immediate fruition, but even a million years from now, when the resurrection happens, there's still fruit bearing from those decisions you begin to make right now. Because what James says is the foolishness perspective, the blindness to reality, is that all my decisions need to have a fruition right here and right now. I need to taste this. But what wisdom is, is realizing this world is never going to end. Life is but a drop. The resurrection is coming. The new heavens and new earth are coming here. And there are decisions and plans that I can begin to invest in right now that millions of years from now will still taste life. And what will help you understand that more than anything, James says, 
is if you begin to understand your life is just but a mist, and life is here and gone tomorrow. And how in the world is knowing that you are but a mist comforting? It's only comforting if you know living water. Jesus looked at this woman who was starving and lost and confused and said, I give you something that will drink and it will last forever. And then he looked at all the religious people and he said, anyone who thirsts can come unto me and out of him will flow springs of living water. See, Jesus will offer you something the world will never offer you. What the world will tell you is if you make the right decisions, if you do enough research, if you have enough conversations, if you get enough control, then you can live a good life. And you'll be full of joy, happiness, and contentment in this year. But Jesus is so merciful and gracious and loving to us. He says, I will never give you that burden. I will never put that control on you. In fact, he did something that none of us could do. This is, this is why we need Jesus. You understand, in the most significant, pressure-pointed moment of the world, he resisted the illusion of control. And Satan brought him up on the, on the hill and said, if you do this for me, if you bow down, I will give you control over everything. If you want peace, joy, and happiness and comfort now, I'll give it to you. And up on the cross, when they mocked him and said, get yourself down, the possibility of control had to be overwhelming for him in that moment. But he resisted the illusion of control. He resisted the reality of control. So that when your life feels out of control, you can know for sure that you are absolutely loved. See, this, this is the beauty of the gospel that, 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 that James wants to unveil for us this morning. Life is here, it's gone tomorrow, and you control none of it. But somebody does. And what the cross says is that by virtue of Jesus' love and blood for you, you are dearly loved, and you are dearly provided for, and there is nothing to worry about. And so whether it be A or whether it be B, you can begin to make those decisions with joy, with peace, with comfort. Now, your life does not hinge on whether you go left or whether you go right. It hinges on the fact that he calls you his child. Because life is going to be here, it's going to be gone tomorrow, and something you can plant today can last a million years but only if you're in his hand. Say this to yourself, look, for 2018, I am not the Christ. I can't control anything. I really can't. But somebody does. And the cross and the resurrection say, I am his. Look, you have two options in life. Either you need to get really smart and you need to have more conversations, you need to do a whole lot more research so that you can make the perfect decisions and you can have the best life ever. Or you can come to Jesus right now, in this moment, whether you be skeptic, whether you be confused, or whether you call yourself his child, you can come to him and he will never give you the burden 
of making all the right decisions and of pursuing control that he will say, come to me and I will give you rest. Let's pray together. Lord, decisions are something we cannot not do in this world and it dominates our life. Yet we go into it so burdened and so overwhelmed because we want life to go well. We want it to go well for us. We want it to go well for the people around us. Set us free. There's no way life is meant to be this worrisome and this exhausting. Lord, it's, it's got to be more joyful than it is. And your words that life is but a list. Uh, may it not scare us, may it set us free that we can uh, just live joyful, fun years together in this church and life going forward in our families. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.